You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Nayara Huck, who's a serious XM host and television commentator who has worked at the highest levels of U.S. government to solve global challenges. She serves as a senior director in the White House, helping to implement President Obama's agenda on national security and economic policy. She served in the State Department as a senior advisor under Secretary Hillary Clinton and Secretary John Kerry, explaining U.S. foreign policy to audiences around the world. Her global experience is based on a foundation of understanding U.S. politics and culture, having spent several years helping members of Congress connect with their local communities. Overall, she has led communication campaigns and public relations efforts in nearly all 50 states in 30 countries. So welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. I'm excited to be with you all today. So you and I are in somewhat similar positions, if you kind of think about the idea of taking a complicated national security concept and trying to explain it to the public. Right. And in many cases, that's what we kind of both do on a day-to-day basis. So the listeners out there all know how I got to where I am right now. So I'm really wondering if you can talk a little bit about the path to your career, because you look like you're going down the straight and narrow. You've got a history degree. You look like you're going to have a promising future before you decided to break bad and go into the <laughs> communication side. Um, so what into that whole, you... like, let's talk to the public pace, yes, yes. Which, is, which is not something national security professionals are used to doing. Right, exactly. So, so how did you get to the White House, mm-hmm. you know, from, you know, no one can, they'll see your picture if they decide to look at it when we post this, but. I look like young, I'm 12. But you're young, right? And you look like you're 12, but you are young. I mean, it's, it's not a, you're not 80. Right, you're not Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, God bless <laughs> I'm, her soul. I'm, I'm live, somewhere let her on live the spectrum forever. between right. high school yes. ingenue and RBG. And, RBG. Yeah. and that I am comfortable with that as being an assessment of my age range. Thank so, you. <laughs> so how did how did you get to where you got? Um, so I will. I think this is an interesting time to ask this question, given the testimony of Fiona Hill, 
an immigrant, uh, and the testimony of Michael Venman, an immigrant. I was not an immigrant, my parents were, but I deeply connect to their story of why they came to the United States. Um, they grew up in Pakistan, didn't see economic opportunity or advancement for their families, both had responsibilities, were really bright, um, and were able to secure, my father was able to secure a um, residency here as a doctor in the United States. And that was at the height of the Vietnam War, when doctors are being drafted and overseas. And so the United States has to look outward, literally, to take care of its own domestic population. I think that was a fascinating um, grounding of my sense of uh, government and my sense of Americanness, um, because I always saw it as an opportunity. I saw myself as extremely lucky just by birth uh, of having been able to start a little bit ahead on the starting line compared to where my parents started. As I grew older, I realized that that starting line is different for people based on economics, based on race and all sorts of other issues in the United States itself. And that excited me about exploring not just history and politics, but also how people connect with the sense of being American. And I wanted to give back. So um, I, I, I was indeed that nerd that in high school was door knocking and canvassing and really getting engaged in, in government. Um, I had a really strong civics program. So they encouraged that in us. And I, I feel like that piece is missing in a big part of American culture today for another generation of just feeling connected to local politics and decisions of what government is doing for you. By the time I got to college, um, you know, got caught up. There's a lot of the academic conversations. And I felt that there was a disconnect between how people talk about things in theory and what actually happens when the rubber meets the road. And so for me, um, I actually ended up with an internship um, coming off of a summer and never left DC. So like I, I didn't even go back to college. That's, that's the story so many people have, right? Yeah. Is that they got here and kind of just got sucked into the, the well, world. And I and I also knew, let's be honest, my name is Nayura Haq. Like if I'm blindly applying to a job and no one's ever met me and it's not somebody who is aware of my experience, like I don't have an upper leg in that way. Like my name's not James Smith, where it's just people hear that and think differently. So I was like, I've got this awesome internship. The team likes me. They're willing to set me up with an entry-level job. I'm going to take it because I, I, I knew from an earlier age I wanted to be in this space. I actually thought maybe I would be involved in policy making directly. But again, it really became clear that there's all sorts of great things government does on the inside that don't get communicated to people. And so in the, I would say this was the late 90s, early 2000s, George Bush um, was president of the United States. I mean, Democrats really were uh, a certain section of the Democrats were working against the Iraq War. Others went along with it. That was a big divide back then. Um, and so I, I saw that, and I, and I saw the gaps, and I decided that I wanted to be part of the solution of helping people connect, and so that learn how media works, and so I became a communicator. On the flip side, I also realized that there was an opportunity to um, inform and learn a skill, and that uh, in, in that public communication space and working with media that could be empowering to people themselves, right? And so the media obviously plays a really strong role in informing the public. And fast forward, you know, 15 years later, now that we're in a Trump presidency, I see the importance of strengthening transparency in government to be critical. Like now I, I look at it more as there's a lot that government isn't doing for the people, and so you need the transparency and communication on that end um, for the fourth estate, which is the media, to hold elected officials accountable. Let me ask you something I wasn't going to ask you, but you kind of went across it and it kind of popped into my head. I'm wondering about your, your Pakistani background, mm -hmm. um, you, you're Muslim, 9-11 um, before and after, what was it, was it a 
detriment to your career or was it something like a lot of people have talked about like hey I know I know Arabic and Farsi I'm gonna get a really good job now I mean was there something that, did you did you notice any difference at all I mean because in the political realm it wasn't as acute perhaps as a NATSEC and, and in the intelligence community I think it depends on which team you were on right and I, and, and we, again we see this now if you if you were a, a Democrat then was considered an asset of okay well let's help let's try to understand this community this population um, there's a sense that if you are a native speaker of a critical language, you could be helpful. Um, on the flip side, I uh, I knew somebody who had interned at the White House, um, and after 9-11, he was kicked out. I knew somebody who, I'd heard of somebody who was a senior official in the White House, um, who was also Muslim and of South Asian descent, and he got kicked out and moved over to the Department of Transportation, which is considered a demotion. Just a little bit. It's just a little bit, yeah. um, especially when you're not a transportation expert, right? So I, I saw that happen. So I, I really sensed that divide of how this was going to start to affect the development of the political parties post 9-11. I mean, to be clear, I was in D.C. 9-11. We evacuated the Capitol. Um, and so I, I distinctly remember that uh, that feeling. And my hometown, um, Staten Island, lost 50% of the first responders um, on the island because they went immediately to help in Manhattan. So this was very deeply personal uh, to me um, on, and hitting actually all of my identities at the same time. And, and looking over then, you know, fast forward, this post 9-11 era, an entire generation has been raised and under the specter of never ending wars, but without having to serve. Right. So like my dad came here because effectively of the draft mm -hmm. and how it impacted American life. And now you have service uh, coming from a certain demographic of the United States economically and racially. And people who make the decisions of how these people will serve and sacrifice themselves have no skin in the game. So I, I, I find that problematic. Um, but I also find that then those same people will turn around and denigrate the diplomats um, and the military members who have served because of their family's ethnic origin, which goes back to Vinman in his opening statement to Congress had to preempt the questions that he might get and explain that his dad ran away, had, you know, barely escaped in Russia, Soviet Russia, uh, and that part of why he made sure that he knew the language and volunteered in the military was because he felt an obligation to reward the country that took care of his family. Yet they still attacked him for that story. Um, and Fiona Hill, too. I mean, she's expert at what she does, but because she had a British accent, she was attacked by the Republican Party. And that is something that I've noticed has changed. My parents came here and were Reagan Republicans when they became citizens. And post 9-11 did not feel welcome in that party anymore or that their contributions uh, were welcomed by this party as part of American society. And so that's part of my family's evolution um, and moving towards the Democrats. Let me let me ask you about big picture concerns with the difficulty associated with communicating policy. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something that, uh, to me, um, we certainly will talk about the foreign realm. Let's talk about domestic first. Sure. Because as we we're living in this world where it's so bifurcated, where it's so polarized, and there are policies that affect national security, mm -hmm. that affect our standing in this world, whether they're economic policy like tariffs, whether they're national security policy like it's in Syria or in Russia or Ukraine or anywhere else. How do you communicate or is it possible now to communicate to the American public objectively about policy without taking into account the political ramifications of what you have to say? I mean, are we in a world now that's so upside down that you can't 
talk about objective truth in foreign policy. I mean, you kind of see it with, with Senator Kennedy, which ironically, some, there's a Senator Kennedy, now it was a Republican, mm -hmm. uh, who went to Russia on the 4th of July, yeah. who is still holding on to this Ukraine hack the 2016 election, even though every agency on earth has said no. Mm -hmm. That seems to be politics, not policy. Yes. I would say there's a distinction in the last 10 years versus, say, the last 50. There's always been a xenophobic strain in American politics, right? And it, and it ebbs and it flows, and those of us who've studied history are aware of that, and so you can be vigilant about it. But then there's the, you know, the 10 years of when people feel like there's been progress made, and then they kind of forget how the progress happened. So I, I do find it fascinating that the party that was, you know, uh, Rocky's party against Drago is now talking about, like, doing Fourth of July in Russia. I'm like, as a communicator, optically, not a good thing yeah. if you're a member of Congress to be sitting anywhere outside of the United States on July 4th. Right? Like, you should be in your constituency celebrating with them. That, to me, is actually less of an indication of party and politics and policy and more of how disconnected elected officials became from the people they were meant to serve. And I actually think that we are not as polarized as we like to think. It is much more that people are more active and engaged and vocal. They are not sheep and silent anymore. The question becomes, now that everybody does feel like they have skin in the game, where are they getting their information? And that's where I think it's dangerous that um, 75% of the media has been called fake news. And when people are looking for information, are they learning? Are they looking in critical thinking and analytical ways um, and questioning what they're hearing versus, I'm gonna pick the one outlet that tells me what I want to hear and that won't force me to question my assumptions about who I am and what decisions I've made in my life versus, am I going to look at something that challenges where I sit uh, and what I bring to the table? Domestically, I think one of the hardest things actually to communicate not even is, is not even national security because we do get uh, the sense of the good guys and bad guys and, and feel that the United States is in the good guy-ish, but that there's a responsibility we have to maintain that. I think that domestically the economic story is much harder um, because there's a version of economics when I worked at Treasury at the height of the, I mean, I came in as part of the Obama uh, rescue of the economy to prevent a Great Depression. And there were severe tensions of what do you save first? Do you save these um, big banks and bail them out? Because if you don't do that, then the entire financial system collapses because we've gone so far down this road to capitalism. Or do you try to figure out how to bail out homeowners or do you kind of figure out something in between? Now, the argument on the first side was, well, you invested in banks and you saved City and a couple other banks and the US government got a return on its investment. And so we made all the money back and then someone, look, the system is still working. The argument on the other side was, actually, you got the system working for the same people right. it was working for before. You didn't change the system fundamentally to work for the people who ended up being sold bad mortgages and couldn't afford their homes and they still don't have a home. So I think that's the piece we're seeing now come forward in the 2020 presidential campaign on both sides of the aisle. Now the difference being, I think Trump really um, tapped into that uh, lingering resentment of uh, who gets ahead in the world and who doesn't and pointed at other people as the problem, right? It, right? it is a modern version of the Southern strategy. On the Democratic side, it is not other people, it's the system. Or yes, it is now other people, it's the billionaires are the problem. So like, who do you point to as having made the big mistake? 
that to me is tougher to navigate and communicate around because there's so many emotions that people have because it's their personal experience. Foreign policy on the flip side, those are stories we tell about our identity as a country. Um, those are facts or things you know about history or you even see great movies written about civilizations and war and heroism. So I think that taps into a broader sense of American self. But that what, you can what, tell what is, a story like but what that. is the American self? I mean, we, we don't have a common language. I mean, English mm-hmm. is quasi-common language, but we're the second most populous Spanish-speaking nation on mm-hmm. Earth. You don't have a common heritage because we're a melting pot mm-hmm. of different backgrounds and different environments. You would think the Constitution could possibly be... And I say that, that I think that used to be the right. thing. And, and now, that's what's coming in not question. so much. Right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you look at, again, kind of our viewpoints about you know, who we should be to the outside world. And this is not brand new. Again, no. a lot of people think I, I, I just no, come and smash on I, I would say, what do you say, 30-year, 40-year cycles? Well, sure. I mean, but you, you look at the kind of same ideas you see in the 1960s where they're in the 1860s yes. where they're in the 1760s. And you look at some of the key issues that we're still debating today came like during the Bush administration on inter- enhanced interrogation, right? Mm-hmm. Those obviously, who, what kind of country do we want to be? And then right, under like, the Cl- do you lead by example or do you lead by expediency and getting the job done? Right. Or the Clinton administration, do we want a president who is sleeping with every single person mm-hmm. in the White House and then lies about it? Right? And another one is, right, and that one was the, does the, does the character of the person matter right. or is he just getting good stuff done and that's all we care about? Again, it's, it's a constant with both of those examples. It's the, how do you balance, um, efficiency and produ- productivity with the values that you're bringing to the table and like which one and parties go back and forth on it right like this is where that's the thing but I think that's something we all struggle with as individuals also like am I going to do the thing that's just easier for my family if it means I have to throw somebody else under the bus or not but your job was to communicate American values to, to the rest of the world, to the rest of the world. and I how do you do that if you don't know what the hell american values I, I, are right? i never felt as american as when i was overseas right because it is a concept that genuinely only really exists outside of right. the body right like you don't feel like you're a part of your family as much as like suddenly when you bump into somebody else's family and like you're the sole representative of your family at somebody else's thanksgiving you're like oh okay i get how i was raised a little bit differently um so i the principles that we used to and I, this is the danger of trumpism i think because uh, we used to disagree on execution of policy um, and the tactics, but we didn't disagree on the fundamentals. What I loved about working in national security is I never necessarily knew who was a Republican or a Democrat. I knew people I was working with in the Foreign Service and in the military. I knew if they were a institutionalist or if they were a, um, you know, a, prag- a pragmatist or a realist, like all these schools of thought mm-hmm. that tended to cut across um, different segments of the politics. But again, all of those are about how do you actually execute and the theory of how you execute policy, right. not what are the things you're doing. It really was we fundamentally believed and spoke about how this great American experiment has worked for almost 200 years. It has been flawed, but it is a system that allows for anybody to join and agree to a set of principles. I still think we take for granted how anyone can be American in that way, right? And that's what I think the Stephen Millers of the world or Bannons of the world are attacking. They're like, no, if you don't look a certain way, you can never be American versus as long as you ascribe to these ideas that we call the Constitution, you can be American. And you, if I, I was, I remember talking to former Prime Minister Tony Blair and explaining this to him. I'm like, oh yeah, I know. There's people in your country who will never, you will never see as British. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how many generations they're here. 
I am seen by my own government as American because I was born here. Well, I'm right? like, and look, that's that's it. And, and it blows their mind, even in European countries. Forget about we're talking Asian countries where family comes first or lineage matters. It genuinely blows their mind that we do hold true this our own mythology of self as Americans that you can show up, you can sign up for these ideas and raise yourself up by your bootstraps. Now, we all know in practicality those things don't hold true universally, but that is still the idea of what it means to be American. And that's been very, very powerful for diplomats all over the world. Right. Oh, well, it's the thing. You're, you're the first generation of your family born in the United States. I'm the 16th. Mm-hmm. You know, my family came over in 1632, but which, we're both equally. Which, what kind of boat? Do you know what boat they came on? Oh, part of part of the Mayflower. Yes, yes, awesome. And I can and look prove at it. Us, right? I can prove it. Yes, and right, exactly. But like, look we're at us. We're sitting where, here yeah. having a conversation about what it means to be part of the country we're in, and what it means to be American, and that is perfectly normal and acceptable that we can do that. Right. That's what. So, it, like, coming, we're the same age ish, but that was so. We're, ex- we're somewhere between Anjou and yes, RBG. That was something that was wonderful during the Bush administration. Is that literally? I mean, looking back at it now, in hindsight, it, it would turn out that we literally, we had the same goal in mind, but there was this debate about how we got there. Yes. And, you know, there whether or not... There was no doubt that yeah. American values were under attack, right? There was no doubt that Al-Qaeda did bad, right? And something needed to be happened. It was, okay, is it going to be a heavy footprint? Is it going to be targeted? Right. How do you do that? But th- there wasn't a sense of um, overseas that there was an enemy that needed to be confronted. I will say that you, you did start to see the roots of some of the challenges we're facing now, particularly in like national security recruitment. I had a friend who um, his foreign language skills were impeccable uh, and actually had gotten certified at college um, for the language. And he told me about his experience that the agency would recruit, but you'd hit a point where you would just never get off a list and actually get hired. And so even within the agency, recognizing you needed critical language, whether it be Arabic or Urdu or Pashtun, they never quite trusted to actually hire the folks who had a native experience in it, even though they desperately wanted to serve. And that could be that could be a, the difference between what the CIA wants and what the counterintelligence people are willing, the security people at OPM and others are willing to clear. Yeah. It may not be an issue. And that, with those attentions within government. And then yeah. on the same side, you have the CIA investigating, uh, working with the police department in New York City, a uh, huge scandal um, that came out after the Bush administration to infiltrate the very communities that were in theory going to be helpful right. in solving this problem. So that that is the, the the it's less for me the threat of never ending war and boots on the ground. I think that when one group of society serves and the other doesn't, I think that's problematic for your long term identity. But it's also the who do you think is part of the problem and how do you identify the problem? And that's that to me has been a recurring theme post um, 9-11 that now has uh, expanded to include the problem is these you know, undocumented workers who are frankly keeping the agriculture industry afloat, but somehow they are the national security problem. Right. Anytime you have a podcast like this, you run into classification as an issue, mm-hmm. right? We have people who come on, they can only say so much. Okay, now or... imagine trying to do it in a foreign language. Well, so that's my in question. in my brain, I'm like, okay, I can't say that. I can't say that. Uh, that's my question. You work for the president. Okay. You're working for secretaries of state. How much of a problem is classification? Do you need an end around to get the message across? Like, are you able to, so to the, communicate these ideas? And this was very interesting. So one of the, I actually think this was like the coolest thing I've done. And um, it felt good spiritually and just patriotically. Um, I, I grew up speaking a foreign language at home, uh, relatively bilingual. I didn't have certain like academic uses of it. Um, and I always found actually that the foreign service versus the military, the military actually had a better 
language program because the military uh, you realize that folks who are stationed overseas um, end up interacting with communities right mm -hmm. like local groups and um, are usually trying to communicate very day-to-day -day things like hey be safe hey this is happening hey can you help me here versus the diplomats operate at higher levels of government so the foreign service tends to train for can you negotiate a memorandum of understanding in this foreign language which is very different so i was um I, I was asked um, during the um, negotiate the era in which Richard Holbrook was negotiating with the Taliban and this concept of you need to negotiate a peace in order to wind down this war, right? When this was first starting. So we didn't talk about it, number one, not for real. Like this was a thing that was happening behind the scenes mm -hmm. and high CT, like high classification levels. We didn't talk about it. Um, but uh, so I was on that team and part of that was um, communicating to audiences, India, Pakistan, London, Dubai, in a foreign language, just broader US foreign policy. Like, why should you be able to trust the United States when your country is actively telling you the US is the problem? Right. And we see in many of these spaces, and I know London, not its own country, but there's communities there that feel very isolated from government. So how do you get these communities to believe that there's genuinely a US interest in helping them, that they are in this fight of counterterrorism together with the US, when many of their own leaders are telling them the U.S. is the problem. Uh, and, you know, so you do that with community conversations, you do that through media, and I had to do it in foreign language. So I remember one point sitting there with 14 reporters in uh, Lahore and having to talk about counterterrorism cooperation without ever once mentioning the word drones or acknowledging that drones even existed or that anything the United States would ever do involved drones. And of course, and, I'm sure that was their number one issue, right? That drone. Civilian casualties. Yeah. And, yeah. and what I would point to, and I realized this was valuable to have an American, and now mind you, no matter what language I spoke and what I look like, I would always be American to these folks. Like that, that's the other thing. Like people, when they qu have questions about dual loyalty, like, you know, you don't understand. Like we are distinctly, especially because we are of, like we're the, we're the product of the families who left. Right. Right. So we will always be American in that sense. Um, but I remember talking about how uh, they needed, I remember the one of the lines I would use is like, yes, let's talk about the casualties in this. And I don't mean just 9-11. And I would say this would have, we all know what happened in 9-11. But let's also talk about what your communities have given up in this fight on terror, right? They, you know, the communities, um, the Pakistani military has, I forget what the number was back then, but right, I would cite the stats of how many, how many, how many, they, how many military folks have died in this war on terror. And I would say, this is a problem for you as a country, and this is not a problem that the United States invented, right? So is it a problem? Did it come over to hurt the United States in the end? Absolutely, but this is something that we need to be in together, and we need to recognize the mutual sacrifices that are being made, and that recognition that from a US government official, that they had skin in the game, that they had sacrificed, made all the difference. And I noticed this, like I said, from London to Dubai to Hyderabad to Lahore, that that resonated with people uh, because there's always been in each of these spaces an idea of American arrogance, right? Great. Americans think they're better than us. They want to lecture us and tell us what to do. They don't understand our problems. So recognizing that these are problems that exist and that people have actually made a lot of headway on their own means something to people. And I translated that to other parts of my life too, um, particularly when we're talking in, in domestic political discourse of people just being really upset and really angry, is giving the, starting with the emotional recognition that people are coming from a place of being deeply hurt 
and having deep loss and that attacking them is not going to move the conversation in a better place. And so that's the piece to me that I really thought was valuable to learn as a diplomat, which I would say is very different than the other aspects of national security. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, let me ask you about a specific case study, and in this case, um, about eight years ago in May, we inv- we invaded Pakistan. There's no other way to say it. We invaded Pakistan. Oh, yeah, we all, we all talked and, around it, and yeah, like, uh-huh. and had a military oh, and mission way, in Abbottabad. And I would just say this, uh, considering classifications, I would say this: there is there is very little that was done in Afghanistan and Pakistan that was not done in coordination. coordination with the militaries that exist in those countries. Abbottabad was likely the exception. Right, with the exception of... Yeah. Right, was likely the exception. Everything else, there is a, I will say this, there is a strong counterterrorism relation, or was, because so, I'm talking now like 2012, 2013. Uh, there was strong counterterrorism relationship between the U.S. and Pakistani military, and that was, by the way, considered more important of maintaining that than there was any recognition among the civilian populations of how to heal the divides between the communities, right? right? So it was like, okay, let those people kind of complain as long as we as a military, both militaries can reach our objectives. And I think we've come to see in the years afterwards that the militaries actually don't always have the same objective. Well, I mean, bin Laden's killing was something celebrated around the world, but there were certainly some diplomatic cleanup that needed to take place in Pakistan But the diplomatic cleanup wasn't about the military. Right. They kind of like it, it wasn't about the fact that, uh, you know, Pakistani airspace was violated. That was that didn't blow up and become a huge issue. The diplomatic cleanup actually was on the intel side in that um, Pakistan and Nigeria are the two countries where polio still exists. And there's been a large mm-hmm. development effort to eradicate polio. And like literally we've almost eradicated polio from the world. That is a huge like human civilization accomplishment. Right. And um, CIA, uh, was, it was found that CIA had um, gained an asset who was able to get a blood sample from Osama bin Laden or his family, I forget the details, um, but it was under the guise of vaccines. That spread like wildfire. Right. And it absolutely destroyed the vaccination programs in the north of Pakistan and throughout the country. So there was a s- distinct human development cost to the way that uh, agency decided to run the operation. And that's, once again, an example of how these three pieces of national security, military, diplomacy, and development, we tend to forget the development piece, um, in Intel really have to work together if you want the world to be a more stable place. And part of the challenge is that that wasn't that impact of um, disbelieving science and disbelieving in vaccines was not limited just to Pakistan after that, right? It is spread around the world in these rural communities um, that these vaccines are actually the U.S. government trying to steal your DNA. 
And that now the entire world community is dealing with the ramifications of that. Let me ask you about another case study where communication, I think, played a key role or, or failed, perhaps, to play a key role in helping Americans and people around the world understand what actually happened. And yes, it's become very politicized, but even for those that are on one side or another of the political spectrum, I'm sure we could probably walk out to the middle of Washington, D.C., where you have some very educated people and say, tell me what happened in Benghazi. Mm -hmm. And probably not too many people could give you a good TikTok of the step-by-step, -step, whether it was a stand-down order or what Hillary Clinton was involved. And of course, she went through hours and hours and hours of testimony on this. But even in that case, was this a communication failure? Not, I'm not yes. blaming it yes. on you. No, but, yes, yeah. no, absolutely. And I, I remember there, there was a team set up in the bowels of the State Department to kind of track all the emails and see like what was said and what wasn't. Because there's like, you know, every action has an after action report, right, in process. So I, I remember hearing and seeing that. Um, I remember when it went down, uh, and I, um, you know, was not doing Middle East work at the time. But I was on the communications team, and I remember the traffic going back and forth between the State Department and White House, um, and, and like, okay, what happened? What is this? We know, here's what we know. We know we've lost a U.S. ambassador um, who was friends with many of our senior leadership. So that was, it was emotionally challenging and difficult for many people. Uh, we know we've lost some officers, also emotionally challenging and difficult. So what happened? Let's get to the bottom of this. And there's chatter, of course, this is right around the time of the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. So very easy to connect this video with that. Um, and it's a rule of thumb that we all know that your first line of intel is not gonna be correct. Like that, that's a thing that we all know but people still want answers, and so often people will talk off that first line of intel. You can't, on the flip side, you can't sit there for seven days and say, we don't know anything, we can't say anything, right? right? So yes, this is what is said first. More intel comes, you do more digging, you rely on your intel folks, you rely on your military folks, and then your civilians and your diplomats say, okay, here's what we think is happening. So any one of those situations is an evolving situation of learning what happened after the fact, right? right? while still dealing with the realities of we lost an ambassador and we lost an outpost and we needed to know why. So um, seeing that unfold over, I, I don't think that I or really anybody else in that first two, three days really predicted that it would blow up into the thing, the political um, narrative or just political um, football that it did because we were just genuinely trying to do the job in right. the moment. And, and that's what's unfortunate about it because it, it involved way beyond like what you know, Hillary Clinton may or may not have done, right? People were doing their jobs um, and, and just trying to serve the public and get information out and um, while taking care of each other. So it was a very painful and difficult time. Were you handcuffed somewhat, or at least was the communication team handcuffed? Because now there's been narrative being put out there by people writing books like 13 Hours and by mm -hmm. people who are involved and then can write whatever they want to at this point. Mm -hmm. There hasn't really been a counter narrative from the State part Department well, or CIA perspective. I think perspective. That's part of it was the counter narrative was, um, you know, Hillary Clinton testifying for 11 hours, right? Like she straight up just sat there and answered every damn question. But she's a walking political firestorm. Like right. she's in a and position where- And there also where... was, I think another good person then to look at or back then, the testimony of, um, she was Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, uh, Toria Newland, uh, who actually, and she used to be the former ambassador to NATO before she took that job. And was actually a very smart choice to pair her and Hillary Clinton together because her husband is Fred Kagan, and you know Toria is an old school Republican, anti Russia, like all. But again, the two of them were working to defend U.S. national security. So her testimony, I think, is also the fact that it lined up with the secretaries um, and other TikToks of the day. Um, my, I mean, certainly, again, I think that's where the politics played in. She certainly did not get thrown under the bus the way 
someone like Hillary Clinton or Susan Rice did. Mm -hmm. But there's multiple people like that, of that background, who were just experienced diplomats with different political leanings who were involved. Um, but yeah, that that's the, the story, the more compelling movie story is those 13 hours. Right. Right, it's not the after effects of what messages got sent when. It just doesn't make for compelling TV. Let me ask you about something that, that happened very near the end of the Obama administration. That was the idea of communicating a red line in Syria. Mm. And this was something that mm -hmm. I don't care what side of the aisle on it. You can be very critical of the Obama administration for saying there's one and then there wasn't one. And was this a communications issue? How do you convince... I mean, from a basic sense, how do you convince our adversaries or allies mm -hmm. or anyone else that we mean business when we say one thing and then it goes by and then we don't do anything about so it? So it's, it's who's your audience, right? right? In that time and place, um, and I was at the UN uh, with Ambassador Power, I believe when that happened, but certainly in the after, aftermath of that dealing with Syria and the continuing violations of international norms and um, you know war crimes that we saw coming out of Syria with the support of the Russians. Um, and so I was dealing with that at the international level and the direct ramifications of pulling back that there was a red line crossed and actually we're not going to do much about it. So clearly there's a lot of disappointment on behalf of the international community who at that point had really looked to the United States to lead the way because the UN is not an action-oriented body, right? They set norms and standards of how we should all relate to each other, but peacekeeping troops go in way after something's mm -hmm. gone wrong. Whereas countries unilaterally or with their own coalitions can make things happen, right? We saw that post 9-11. We saw that in Iraq also, like that effectively was the U.S. circumventing the United Nations system. So I think people felt that the United States could have actually broken through all that bureaucracy and done something. With that said, there was zero domestic constituency for going to war in Syria, right? We are way more aware of international context now, um, right? Like there was zero domestic constituency, well, maybe I'd say 5% back then for even climate change action to be happening. We were trying to sell to a large part of the American public that climate change was an existential threat to the United States, the planet, national security, everything, right? And so in that time and place, I understand, I'm not saying I agree, but I understand the calculation made of we are drawing down from Iraq-ish, we're effectively the country, like they kicked us out. We have not figured out how to resolve uh, boots on the ground in Afghanistan. And now we are feeling compelled potentially by morality and the you know folks who believe military should be used for humanitarian intervention versus military being used for discrete uh, objectives, right? Like all these theories came home to came home to roost in what do you do in Syria? Um, and it was, I remember it was like the day before. It's like, all right, red line, what's Obama going to do? And then the next day, it like was front page that Obama changed his mind. I mean, like that, right. I still remember that kind of narrative. It was like from one day to the next. Like We all thought we were gearing up for something, and then it was like, no, we're not going to do this. And I don't think the public cared. Those of us in national security did. Right. But nobody went boo about, okay, and, and, and Trump has tapped into that. Like it was the early version of what we've seen Trump tap into, which is we don't want to be doing stuff overseas to solve other people's problems. At least the Obama administration maintained international treaties to be like, okay, here's a way that we can stay engaged without necessarily putting U.S. skin in the game, but we need to be engaged in this globalized world. But doesn't that go back to my original question? I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm -hmm. The idea, the big picture difficulty of explaining to the domestic population what matters 
in foreign policy. But matters to who, well, right? I, I see a lot of people in national security, and this is where I draw my political, early political um, work, that we really shouldn't be doing things in the absence of the American public understanding or I don't say necessarily agreeing with every move in national security, but I do, when I, start, when I started in national security work, I did sense this, oh my God, they're just making these decisions because of what people say. And oh my God, they're making decisions because of politics. I'm like, you know what though? That's fundamentally who we are all responsible to, right. is the American people. At some point, you can go so far down the line of academically arguing um, your way around something and realizing that you've forgotten what you're supposed to be serving. And I think that's the the flip side of what often happens um, is that often in national security we encourage that disconnect, and I'm the communicators are the ones trying to like bridge that divide. Right. But like your practitioners are like, well, that's actually not what matters. I'm like, kind of does because that's the reason you're allowed to do anything you want to do. Right. Was most Americans on the day to day basis aren't thinking about Syria, right? Isn't it the Nor job? Nor should they right, every but, day. Right. But isn't it the job of the national security communicators to kind of bring them along? I mean, that's what leadership is. I mean, Bingo. That's what and that's Roosevelt what bothered is. me. That's what bothered me is that there's a difference between taking cues from the American public and leading, right? American public has trusted national security complex, whether it be intel, diplomats, or military, to be like, all right, you've got this. We trust you. We've Congress to do some oversight, but like, I don't want to be thinking about that every day. So go get your training. Go get your expertise. Let's, you know, whatever you guys have to do within rule of law, take care of that. But tell me and inform me why we're doing this. And if and if you give me a decent enough explanation, I can deal with that. And that's what I think we fail to do. And I think that's what national security folks often either try to chase public opinion right. or do things independently of it. Like lead public opinion then. Explain to people why this matters. Trust that maybe people can get behind you if you say that there is a, a human value here, there's a national security value here, just an American value at stake that we need to defend. People want to feel good about what they're doing, right? And their place, not just in their own communities, but their place in the world. Right. Give them a reason to feel good about what the United States is doing. All the flip side, in absence of doing that, we end up with people just wanting to retreat from it and say that everybody else just sucks. Yeah. Well, let me let me take advantage of your heritage a little bit. I hope you're not offended by asking you a question. Ask that, me anything you want about Staten Island. <laughs> yes, exactly. The ferry, it sucks, right? Dude, um, um, everything you see on TV, totally true. <laughs> I, I I would argue, and I have a people in here who have argued, and I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Is that the, perhaps the most dangerous area of the world is one that most Americans have no idea what's going on, and it's the fact that. Uh, over the last several decades, there's only been times where two nuclear powers have fought yeah. shooting wars against each other. And of course, that's India yeah. and Pakistan. And that's popped back up yeah. recently. And not that it ever goes away, mm -hmm. but it's popped back up where there's shots being fired across the mm -hmm. border. To me, there's a huge mistake. We talk about leadership and leading the narrative. And the fact that 95% of Americans have no idea what's going mm -hmm. on over there. Because that could be the kind of the, the spark that begins the next major war. Um, one of my favorite books, not the movie, but the book is World War Z. Yeah. And that's in, in one of the, uh, in, in that the zombie apocalypse, Pakistan and India have just obliterated themselves with nuclear weapons. Like, they're just like gone. <laughs> Actually, most of them are just gone. Here's okay. our chance. <laughs> Done. <laughs> um, but, uh, sorry, your question. <laughs> well, just, I mean, is that is that a failure of communications? Is that, a, is that just... It's just a hard to understand so, region of the world. Yeah, um, I don't think it's actually hard to understand. Um, it's just it's just the deep seated um, 
identity issues at stake between the two places. And um, as the countries have both evolved separately um, after 50 years, it's it's the it's now become you know they used to be one family that got divorced, and now the cousins don't get along like very deeply. And, and those types of identity rivalries of who you are, where you come from, even though you share a heritage, I think are far more painful um, than the ones we're like, oh, okay, we're two strangers. We don't really know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we see this in other parts of the world too. And I, I don't want to dismiss it as just tribal, um, but there is something very, there, there's a term we use in diplomacy called meta-narrative, right? And we talked a little bit about what the United States meta-narrative is about itself, right? Our raise yourself up by your bootstraps, land of opportunity, believe in the constitution, like, you know, we're frontier people, we just make things happen. Um, and everybody, every country has a meta-narrative about themselves. And I think it's unfortunate that uh, Pakistan's meta-narrative has more to do with being not India or being a, uh, what it's still figuring out what its version of a Muslim South Asian country looks like. Uh, and India's meta-narrative now under Modi has turned into highly nationalistic, highly religious also. So now you have two countries side by side, nuclear powers that are feeding um, domestic religious sentiment, extremist domestic religious sentiment. Neither country is, or uh, neither government in power has decided to double down on pluralism or rule of law Mm -hmm. or like equal opportunity and all of those things. And that actually, frankly, is exactly what the Trump administration is doing, right? They're feeding a certain segment of the population that has a sense of identity rooted in skin color and religion. And that's a rising international problem. So we're facing it here in the United States. We shouldn't be surprised that anybody else is facing it in the rest of the world. Well, it's crappy just kind of looking at it from a any, anybody perspective, but it's more problematic because both India and Pakistan are key allies of the United States. Yeah. India being the world's most populous democracy, Pakistan being a key ally, frenemy, frenemy, terrorism. Oh, yeah. And of course, you have China being involved in trade relationships with both countries, and mm-hmm. and in the Russia, I, don't forget and Russia too. the Russians as well. And so, the, can the geopolitical? So the geopolitical, right? Like Pakistan's turned to China because they share a border and tons of trade there. Um, India's turned to Russia, and United States halfway across the world is kind of like, eh, right? And it used to be that the United States was engaged with both, particularly um, counterterrorism stuff with Pakistan, um, economic diplomacy in both places. I mean, huge business opportunities in India. Um, but again, as both countries have uh, become more nationalistic and, and more doubling down on these senses of identity, um, they're not seeing um, consistency from the United States. Um, and they're seeing and they're hearing everything we are about, you know, uh, uh, America first, which translates to America alone. They're seeing all the stuff about America pulling out of international treaties that they're all part of, right? They're all part of the Paris Climate Accord. They all know the power of NATO. Um, they see us pulling away from it and they're like, okay, you're effectively telling us you don't matter anymore. Right. But in, but in all, all, all fairness to, which I don't say this very often, but all fairness to the Trump administration, they were, the the, the Pakis, Pakistanis were moving very much closer to China prior to the Trump. Oh, then it's ages, right? And, yeah. and the Indians and towards India, Russia for ages, right? But well, and India being it's kind of an independent. I mean, they were yeah. they were part of the non-aligned during the Cold War, they quasi, and then we pulled them closer to us, certainly. Yes. But they're they've and, always. But that's kind of that's the own. work of diplomacy, yeah. right? That's what you do is you try to strike this balance. So you're just you're at the table. You don't necessarily have to lead the table, but you're there. I think being absent from the table is long-term going to be problematic for the United States. Like, at least know what's going on. Have some contacts and uh, ability to influence when it is to your advantage to influence. Let me ask you a question about your, your work for state, particularly, mm-hmm. because 
a lot of these, like you've mentioned, aren't just diplomatic missions. There's a combination of diplomatic, military, economic, tra everything across the board. How much of your job... Which, again, with the Taliban negotiation was, part of it was looking at the whole region holistically. Right. I mean, everything from USAID mm -hmm. to understanding how, you know, to do security support and police and everything else. Your job had to be a multi-agency job. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that time, the coordination... Um, the Obama administration's gotten some hits for its inability to coordinate, mm -hmm. perhaps as well as it could. Mm -hmm. How how effectively did you coordinate multi-agency during that time? I mean, obviously, they're just never perfect. Right. And every agency, no matter who is sitting in the White House, is going to have its own perspective and point of view um, uh, and, and the equities that they're looking to protect. And it is just like your worldview, the worldview you're bringing to the table. Um, and the tools you bring to the table and the mindset, right? So it's like, yeah, you, you know, you have military at the table. They're going to tell you what the military options are. The State Department at the table are going to tell you what the diplomatic. Well, that's what they know. And so it does take a concerted effort to connect the dots around all of them and then have a, I think, a strong worldview of what's right and what's wrong. Um, I certainly think the Obama administration had a stronger worldview. Well, actually, no, I'll correct that. I was about to say the Obama administration had a stronger worldview than the Trump administration. But that's not true, because yeah. the Trump administration has a very narrow worldview, but very strong, right? Like, you know, America first, no international work, but we're just dialing it all back, and, um, you know, leader-to-leader -leader coordination, pay for play. Like, done. Like, I can describe that policy. More nuanced policy is, by definition, not easy to communicate. Um, and so I think... There, and to it, be fair, shifting policy, because yes. the consistency over the eight years of the Obama administration is not something to be emulated, I would argue. No, and, and that, that's also the, as you deal with a problem that you're dealing with for the first time, right? You're looking at this, you're looking at things are changing. Now what? Well, things changed again. Now what? Um, and there is a, I learned, learned a lot about leadership, right? Because I'm watching all these principles, like one level ahead, wrestling with these problems and what they're bringing to the table as they do it. Um, I think there was a lot of really thoughtful, smart people at the table who wanted to do the right thing, but often would discuss things to the point where then you would need more information, and then, great, you would discuss that new piece of information, and suddenly you realize all this time has passed in discussing and analyzing, and it's decision paralysis, right? So, And academics often do this, too, um, that you've made no decision, and that is a decision in and of itself. Right. Right, like that, things have changed. Like you can discuss something for two, three months and things will have changed and I need a new set of information. And you, you will never be able to figure out every single variable and have an answer for it before you make a move. Should you be doing some level of discussion? Absolutely, right? Like you, so, but such a strong contrast between decision-making in the absence of any coordination information with Trump, like the, the Turkey. We still don't know what happened in that call with Erdogan in which suddenly everybody in the national security complex is like, I'm sorry, what? We're, we're, we're pulling out and leaving the Kurds to hang dry? Wait, you're taking oil fields? Okay, wait, you're sending a thousand troops to Saudi Arabia? Like that was all in one week and nobody had any idea what was happening. There's a big difference between that and discussing what the objectives and strategic engagement would be vis-a-vis counterterrorism and never actually doing it, like, right? right? Like doing everything in targeted, discrete ways. And so I think in that way, people, maybe agencies um, were looking for that leadership direction of like, what do we do? What, what can we do? Uh, and many of them did the smaller things that they could, um, but it was never a declaration of the United States being like, we are here, you know, for, for like what was like a year, it was Assad must go until he didn't. 
Yeah, like that's literally it's like Assad must go. We will not accept anything until Assad. Okay, now he doesn't need to go. Maybe a happy medium between the two might you know some action, but not through tweet. Right. Oh, yeah. it, it, it's it's that's the, right. But it's like okay. But you look at it, you're like okay. But then Iran is there, and then Russia is there, and this. And what does this mean? And oh wait, somehow ICE has infiltrated some of the opposite. What? There's a lot. Right. And so I can see why uh, people would sit back and say, you know what? Let's just be uh, uh, involved around the edges and see what we can contain. Personally, I believe that that will be. Uh, that the legacy of that will be seen as a big mistake. Mm-hmm. That the legacy of it will be we we failed as American leadership. That this was another Rwanda, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Certainly lived in Darfur and all the other things that that were yeah, well, direct results of I, Somalia. I just, I just yeah. don't see that strong action in the absence of any sense of strategy, which is what Trump always does. Is just like, okay, I made a move. Like that itself. The other extreme is no is no good either. So we're really just caught, I think, from Obama administration to Trump between these two different extremes of how to execute foreign policy. Let me, let me wrap up with one final thematic element. And I think this is something that I find really interesting. I certainly think our listeners will as well, is the idea of you're operating as a communicator, communicating to both domestic and foreign audiences, but you're not doing it in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is you're combating messaging from others. And, and some their cases, worldviews. Right, in some cases from foreign entities that want nothing to do with making the United States a better place whether they're bringing in information operations like a full-fledged intelligence operation as we saw in 2016 or even things like I remember the when the Saudis were trying to push against the the Qataris and there were these commercials on TV that Qatar spent mm-hmm. a fortune to say how wonderful they were I'll give you an example from uh, you know in realizing that ISIS had really started dominating social media and like you know these are American made tools that they are using way better than any American government uh, had figured out how to use yet. Um, and you know, it's like the rise of Twitter and YouTube, like when they first really became hot on the scene. And it's like layers and layers of approval bef- before a US government official can send out one tweet in response on any of these message boards. They even created a, a group that was directly responsible for countering these messages. But like they had to get everything approved. Like it just all, the whole thing was unnatural, mm-hmm. not communication designed for the space that you were communicating in. It was inauthentic which now we know is you know, kills you on social media. Um, and so wrestling with that and the fact that we operate within not just a bureaucracy, but America, certain senses of what Americans will or will not do was often a disadvantage to us. Another one was people, we had folks uh, in countries who wanted to use mosques as a communications destination, right? So like, let's give out flyers or let's communicate with Imams and give them these other points, the ones who want to not be preaching hate. Let's give them these points directly. And the pushback was often, yeah, but these are religious entities and we're the US government. We don't do religious propaganda. We don't do that. And we can't do that because of these principles and values. And you're, you're caught between then again, the ethics and morality of what you're starting from versus the expediency of execution. I think that bothers diplomats and development folks way more than it does military folks who are clearly tactical, objective-minded, mm-hmm. which also I think repre- is a representative in how they teach language and they fundamentally even teach communications. I think the military actually teaches people how to communicate in a more um, blunt and direct person-to-person way than you know what we've seen at the diplomatic level. Let me ask you a very big picture in this case, something much more organized than social media. We, we, you and I met on a panel where we had a long conversation about RT, 
because there was actually a member of our panel. Yeah, you know, uh, me- money really helps when you want to run a propaganda machine. Well, that's what's Just interesting. buy yourself a TV yeah, channel, how, how a TV do, network, or whatever it is. The information operations have been so formalized now, and they're so pervasive. And as we've seen from 2016 and beyond, they're very powerful. And mm-hmm. it comes down to now counter-narratives counter and counter-communications. And now you have a channel that is dedicated to dumping propaganda into the United States and they have millions of listeners and viewers or whatever. How do you combat that? I mean, if you're, if you're working, if you're brought back into the administration of God only knows who in 2021, that's probably a priority mm-hmm. is how do we combat this formal organized nation state propaganda machine mm-hmm. that has been more powerful now than ever before, whether it's on Facebook or on RT mm-hmm. or other places. That to me is a communications issue. Mm-hmm. Um, where 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 can we start? There's a balance to be struck between um, free speech and um, what we know as um, fact-based information, and it's actually less the RTs of the world or more the how uh, we don't acknowledge right now Facebook and Twitter and YouTube as media entities. So like a CNN or even a Fox News have more regulations on them than any of these social media platforms. They are they are the new they're called new media for a reason, right? Like that's this is what it is. Um, and I think having some standards of what um, from the government side is important. Uh, I, re- I really do believe and I think we're all seeing the the Pandora's box that was unleashed it was like no we're, we're just community-based platforms like no sorry guys you run advertising you connect a lot more people you are media and so you should have to face the journalistic ethics and standards that others get fined for um, I also just happen to be a believer in American regulation and I will say that um, to any libertarian and any conservative anytime, even though I feel very libertarian myself most of the time, uh, because having experienced life in different parts of the world where you literally do not know if the milk you're drinking is safe to drink, where you would not go to buy meat from just any random butcher or grocery store because you literally don't know what it is or if it's if, if it's what they say it is um, and living with that type of uncertainty in your daily life, we are blessed that we have like the FDA right. and the USDA and to and all the minute regulations that exist on our uh, on these industries these, uh, that frankly the Trump administration is looking to change. So this is the severe downside of deregulation. Right, you actually don't know what you're getting, and I think that applies to our food, it applies to our medicines, and it absolutely applies to the media that we consume. So let me ask you one last question. The next administration, regardless of who it is, Republican or Democrat, even if it's a second Trump administration, mm-hmm. is going to have some cleaning up to do, mm-hmm. I think, with, with American image abroad. Um, you have to care to do it. Right. So maybe not the second Trump administration. Any other administration. And, and, and I wonder how much a, a Democratic administration would make that a top priority, right? Like Because it's not a thing that you... If you look at polling about what voters will care about, they care about whether or not we have friends and allies. Like you describe it as friends in the world, but they don't care about treaties per right. se, right? So it's a, that's the communication piece. So uh, do people really care about the reputation of the United States versus, oh, okay, are we actually physically hurting because of it? So I, I think they'll have to wrestle with that. Um, but there's just a lot to fix at home. And unfortunately, this there seems to be this mental trade-off in people's minds that you have to pay attention to domestics at the expense of what's happening overseas. Because, I mean, looking at the Democratic debates, there's been such a complete lack It took five debates to get to foreign policy. Five. Minus, like, a 10-minute blip 
uh, and the fourth one about the engagement with Syria and you know what to do about Erdogan and the Kurds. Um, but was, this fifth democratic debate was 45 minutes uh, on foreign policy, and it was a reminder that every single one of these people is auditioning for the role of commander in chief. Right. So you should have some ability to talk about it and speak to what your theory of the case is. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. I think we're gonna definitely want to have you back in the future at some point. There's a lot that I want to talk about. We just didn't have time to get to. So. Uh, hopefully you'll, you can come back and talk to us again in the future. I would love that. Thank you all for listening. You know, I get, you get you get a communicator talking. Sometimes it's tough to get us to shut it up. It makes my job pretty easy. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.